Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dion. Today, I'm joined by Sean Allen. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me, Leo. Um, for people who aren't on YouTube, uh, go ahead and explain who you are. Yeah, so like you said, my name is Sean Allen. Most people probably know me from my YouTube channel. I've been doing it for almost seven years now, so... I started making videos when I was just learning myself. I was probably about a year and a half into my career, and that was back in 2017. So over those years, a lot of people have you know, seen my videos, learned from me, so that's where they uh, would know me from. Today, I wanted to have you on and kind of just give a refresh on what people should do. And You seem to be doing a lot of videos lately about like upgrading your career or going from beginner to pro, and I think it would be good to kind of like talk about that and maybe just what are some common misconceptions that you think people have when it comes to being a Swift developer, being a pro Swift developer? Yeah, it's, I have an interesting perspective on that just because all I see from my audience are typically beginners. Now I don't do a lot of like super advanced videos and there, I get asked to do that all the time, but the reason is there's, you know, probably 10 X more beginners than there are advanced people. So I have a good perspective on what the beginners are thinking and, and saying. So uh, my number one misconception is they underestimate like how long it takes. Uh, one of the most common questions I get is how do I become a developer in two months? And it's like, well, no, you're, you have the wrong attitude already, you know? So they, they underestimate that it's going to be a long, hard journey, right? If it were easy, everyone would be doing it and we probably wouldn't make any money because everyone would do it and everyone could do it. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, and they, they're not willing to kind of do things more than once. Like, I think they have a misconception on, I watched one tutorial, so I should know this, right? And, and you know, once you develop, you know, I had to build a hundred table views before I finally knew table views cold, you know, and all the iterations of them. So yeah, I think that that first one is going to be just setting the expectations that it's going to take a long time and you're going to have to practice this over and over and over again. It's like experiential learning. Like you have to do it and do it several times and find out all the little facets of it, like oh, that's what a UI table view data source does as opposed to a UI table view delegate. And this is because you, you do it the first time and you you only need to do the bare bones of it. Like, oh, just mm -hmm. listing out items. And then you realize, oh, yeah. there's all this stuff about editing and differential data source. And like, there's so much more when you start getting into something, but there's like different angles to it that like, yeah. it seems like you're trying to like, which is your, what you're saying is like two months isn't going to give you all those angles on how no. UI table view works. Because there's there's phases to the learning, kind of like you alluded to. There's, hey, I kind of know that I have to type this code, and it'll make that appear on the screen. Like, that's like the phase one. But then there's like, well, what even is a delegate and a data source? You know, how did it tie in together? And then the, I haven't written UI kit in a while. So I remember my <laughs> learning experience is the uh, self-road index path. Like, it took me probably until I built 50 table views to realize that, oh, that's getting called every time a new cell like appears on the screen and realizing what a delegate method really was and how that's working. So again, it's, it's one thing to know what code to write and make it work. It's a totally other thing to fully understand what's actually happening with your code. And that going from point A to point B right there, that's what takes the, the months. And I think again, the misconception is beginners will be like, well, I know what code to write. So I know it, I'm good. And it's like, no, no, you only know the surface. It's like the iceberg, right? There's a whole lot more going on. Yeah. Um, what are some other misconceptions that you've run into from beginners? 
it's not so much a misconception, but a lot of beginners do fall into what I've called the tutorial trap. I don't know if I've coined this term, probably not, but I do notice a lot of people have used it since I, I first made a video about this in like 2018, and now I hear it all the time. And I didn't hear it before, so anyway, don't know. I don't think I coined it, but anyway, I hear it a lot. Yeah. But no, it's 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 uh, you know, it's just one more tutorial. Let me learn this new thing. And, and in programming, there's always a new thing coming out, whether it's like Swift charts or ARKit or you know even SwiftUI itself. There's always the hot new thing coming out, and you know you're just a forever learner. When I know. My learning skyrocketed when I decided to make my own project and there was no cookie cutter recipe to follow. Like I had an idea. Okay, let me make this idea real. And again, there wasn't a tutorial for it. So I had to bang my head against the wall, dig into the documentation and that's rough. It's not fun. You know, you, you know, we talk about like that programmers, like sometimes you feel like a genius. Sometimes you feel like an idiot. You know, you're going to feel like an idiot a lot in that case. And it's not fun, but that process is what will just, uh, your learning will skyrocket exponentially when you do that. So again, stop following people's cookie tutorials and try to build your own thing. You'll learn a lot that way. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I feel like tutorials are good for filling in gaps when I'm trying to learn something new. But as far as like deep diving into something, usually I, I'm the kind of person who just wants to open up Xcode and go at it. And then take a look at it later and be like, okay, like I missed this whole part. There was a easier way to do it. That was 10 times easier that Apple provides <laughs> and I did it yeah. a stupid way. Um, or, um, yeah. And I think like doing that, doing a building an actual project is it gives you a real world, ex real world example because it's your own project, <laughs> right, right, but yeah. like it gives you like, Oh, now I understand like how these pieces fit together as opposed to just like, your 500th to-do list or Pokedex or mm -hmm. whatever the heck you're building. Yeah. Um, and using just a simple UI table view because like no, no right. app is just a table view. Like usually there's like a navigator right. and like, you know, you got a tab view and all this other pieces. Um, and, do you think and building your own, sorry, real quick and building your own thing, just to add on to that, um, requires you to dig into the documentation and learn. Cause like I said, there's no cookie cutter tutorial for you to follow. Yeah. And, I get asked a lot, like, do, what's your best tips on learning the documentation? And I've thought a lot about this, and I always get asked to make a video about it. I don't have a good answer for it because my answer is basically, like, I banged my head against it for two years. And as I – it was kind of almost like two levers being pulled. As my knowledge grew, the docs became easier to understand. And okay. then understanding the docs also helped my knowledge grow. So it's kind of like two things going back and forth. So I don't really have good advice aside from just start putting in the time, putting in the work and know that it's probably going to take a, a while for you to fully understand them. But once you do, that's what is this huge unlock. So you don't have to follow tutorials anymore and you can build your own ideas and learn things by diving into the docs. And then, like you said, when you dive into the docs, you'll see, Hey, maybe Apple already did this for me. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, what else was I going to say? Oh, what, you, you talk, it seems like a lot, like you talked about patience when it comes to becoming a pro. Do you think some people come away with that with kind of their head down and being like, I don't know if I want to do this or are people like, what's kind of the reaction to that? I guess it's mixed and, and it probably comes down to like the personality type because there's some okay. people that you tell them like, Hey, this is going to be hard. And some people get excited by that. Yes. I love a good challenge. And then right. some people, like you said, bow their head and it's like, oh man, I don't know if I want to do this. And right, right. this may sound harsh, but like programming that those roadblocks are never going to go away. If you're right. in this business building this thing, you have to love taking on the challenge, banging your head against it for a while and breaking through. That's what the job is. So I would almost say that 
if hearing that, hey, you're gonna, it's gonna be hard, you gotta have patience, really deters you, I might have just saved you a lot of time <laughs> right. going down this path when you shouldn't have. I don't remember. I keep citing this TED Talk where the guy explains how, like, we sometimes when we see things that we want to do, let's say you want to be an actor, right? We think of all the glamour and fun parts of it, but we forget, like, you have to memorize the lines you sit and you have to be with the grips and you have to have the food service table and be there for 12 hours waiting for your scene and or just anything, like any project. It's like you think of the fun parts and you forget about the pain and the hard part about actually doing stuff. And I think like with programming, I think that's a part of it is like people have this idea, either A, they're doing it for their career, it's like the money, right? Or B, they're like, oh, cool, I'll build this really cool app. But they don't think about, you have to deal with the app store review, you have to deal with getting Xcode to build and upload it, you have to deal with the fact that you have these integrations that you have to put together, you have to deal with Edge cases of, oh, the network doesn't work in your app. What are you going to do then? There's all that's these what, things. That's, yeah, that's what I was about to say. The edge cases, that's what always gets me. Because some of them you didn't even think about. Like my app, just Creative View, just got rejected. And this is an obvious edge case, but I didn't think of it. It got rejected because when they authenticated with Google, their Google account had never created a YouTube channel. So I didn't like oh. think of that case where, oh, they authenticate, but they've never created a YouTube channel. So the app would crash and not work. I've got rejected for it. So it's crazy the amount of edge cases that even if you think you've covered them all, you've probably only covered like 10%. So that is a, for me, that is one of the most demoralizing parts is, oh man, I got 50 more edge cases to cover. And yeah, that's the not fun work. But to, to what you were saying is everyone thinking about the highs, I think that's what makes the highs so much better is when you go right. through all the slodge of the rough work or when you're banging your head against a problem for two days and you finally solve it and you have a good solution. Like that feeling, that's what keeps people coming back to programming. So you, I think you can't have those high times, happy times without the down times. It's the magic when everything works and comes together. Yeah, totally agree. Nothing else. I was going to say something. I forgot. It happens now. Uh, but uh, yeah, I was going to ask. So when people want to learn, going back to that, when people want to become pros, they necessarily, there's two kinds, right? There's people who just want to be really good at their skill. And there's people who want to like do it for their career. What do you think is the difference as far as motivation when it comes to those kinds? A, do you see those two types of people in your audience? And B, like, what are the different ways maybe they should address that? If that makes sense. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely see both types in the audience. Cause there's certainly the type that, they're just laser focused on Fang. Like, how do I get into the Fang company? What do I get to get Fang company? Like, that's all they care about. And like, they don't, I don't think they realize that if you talk to a lot of people, I'm not saying they're bad jobs, but they're not for everyone. So yeah, so those people are laser focused on money. And then there are the people that want to create just because they love creating or this is interest in them or they want to perfect their craft. Perfect is probably the wrong word. They want to improve their craft, right? They're, they hold themselves as craftsmen. Those, I love those people, right? Cause they're here just for the pure love of the game, so to speak. Yeah. And this is like a sweeping statement, but I find the people that only do it for money, it's fine, but they typically peter out or maybe they're not, they don't enjoy the profession as much, but yeah, you can definitely make both work for sure. I'm not, I don't want to say one's better than the other. Both can absolutely work, but they're both very different in my mind. Going back to the thing with, oh gosh, I forgot it again. It's one of those days. <laughs> We're talking about career. Regarding career, how much of it, though, if you want to improve your career, how much of it is really becoming a better Swift developer? Because I feel like, I don't know, 
there's a plateau, right? There's a ceiling at which, yes, you can get, you can be that good. But then there's other parts involved to having a job, email communication, presentations, the other parts of just programming, unit tests, DevOps, etc. Do you, like, where would you put that percentage? And do you ever have to explain that to developers? Okay, if you want to update your career, there's, yeah, you can be a better Swift developer, but there's a point where you need to, like, work on other skills as well. Yeah, I, so my go-to percentage is at least 50-50 tech skills versus soft skills. I'm a big believer in the soft skills. Of course, it's very situationally dependent and very like job dependent, right? Like you're inventing self-driving cars. You need to be insanely good technically, right? If you're inventing the next new thing, yeah, your technical skills have to be off the charts. But if you're building the run of the mill iOS app, you know, basically what I would argue is 80% of the apps out there. Yeah. I would say it's at least 50-50 tech skills versus soft skills. And me personally, I lean more towards the soft skills because as someone who like teaches this stuff, I believe a lot of it can be taught yeah, versus right. like your personality. If you have horrible communication skills or you're just a mean person, you're not a good teammate, all that stuff. That's a lot harder to teach because that's like people's innate personalities versus right. the next new swift topic. So that's why I like lean more towards the soft skills. And I think too, if you're, unless you're like an indie developer, I would say even if you are an indie developer, at some point you're going to have to work with other people. Uh, and either you're going to have to teach them your API, you're going to have to talk to the CFO or somebody who's going to help you finance it. Like you need to sell it. You need to, yeah, I totally agree with that. Cause I, like it's easy for us cause we communicate, right? We're communicators. And that's a mm-hmm. big part of what we do. But I think part of it is just like, you're not only going to be talking to your technical crowd. You're going to have to talk to people who are less technical, who will need to sign off and accept what you're working on. A good a good example of that, because this is more towards the beginners, because like I said, the people that are all FANG, it's very hard to get into FANG as your first job, unless you're a Stanford computer science grad or something like that. But mo- most, especially self-taught beginners, will probably start their career at some smaller company, some startup. And to your point, like that's where I spent a lot of my time in San Francisco, where I was like the only iOS developer or it was me and one other person, but I was like the lead. And like you said, I would have to talk to, this would be like a six, seven, eight person startup. So I'm talking to the CEO and other co-founders, the communication of like, they want to build all these features and then marketing is asking for features. So as you developers out there know, you have to be like, okay, there's trade-offs to all this. Not only, not only one feature versus the other, but then also within one feature, I call it the spectrum of complexity. Because like you can take one feature, make it insanely robust, or there's a much simpler version of that feature, right? And there's a whole spectrum in between. So like you said, communicating with the people that are requesting these features that, hey, if we build this feature to this complexity, we can do that, but we're also going to have to give up this other stuff and then basically put the decision back on them. This is the trade. We have limited resources. We can't do it all. So communicating that in a way is a whole nother art form and a whole other skill. And if you are bad at that, in that scenario, you're probably not going to last long. Whereas if you excel in that, you're going to make yourself just an invaluable member of that team. Do you think, yeah, I was going to say totally. I think too, and in, in communicating within your team as well, like in your development team is super helpful and being able to like take that senior position when the time comes. Or I think to to that point is, I believe if you don't have those communication skills, it'll be very hard to even make it to that senior position. Yeah. The more senior you get, yeah, that becomes way more important. 
I'm, I'm curious about the whole Fang thing. Do you ever have people who come back to you and you're like, yeah, that was not for me? Or I've just heard on Twitter and living in San Francisco, and I've lived in San Francisco from 2014 to 2019. So a lot of friends that were, I never worked at Fang personally, so I can't speak from personal experience. A lot yeah. of people that work there, and it's just the the lifestyle. I'm, maybe I'm using too much of a personal thing because in downtown San Francisco, a lot of them had to bus down to Facebook, more down south. So just Mountain super, whatever, super, super long days. And you don't feel like you're contributing all that much. You're you're one of 5,000 developers working yeah. on a very narrow thing. So I guess when it comes to fulfillment, the small startups are doing your own thing, dwarfs Fang, but also Fang comes with a lot of perks and benefits. So like I said, I'm not saying one is better than the other. I think it's a personal thing. Yeah. I think some people like that structure and being one of a 1,000 some people, like myself, I liked having impact, yeah. seeing my work in the app and seeing the customer's reaction to it. If I didn't have that, like I, I wouldn't enjoy the work. But again, I think totally, it's a personal Totally piece. understand. Yeah, and unfortunately, as we found out the last few months, there's no guarantee of future employment, as we've seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been rough out there. Speaking of that, what do you think, if you are, I think I know where the answer to this question is going to be, but... What do you think is the best way to gain experience in your career if you want to really like upgrade your career and like deep dive? I think it depends on your goals. Back to the whole, let's just do the Fang versus startup path. Mm -hmm. So if Fang is your goal and you're, and again, I'm assuming self learner, right? They learn on YouTube. Cause again, if you go the typical college path where, you know, you're getting a CS degree, you're doing internships along the way. That's more of the path to the Fang big company world. But when it comes to getting your first job or getting a job at a startup to level up your career, I always recommend building small portfolio projects. I get a lot of people that ask, oh, what should my resume say? What should my resume say? And I believe, especially in the small startup land, because I've hired for a few small startups, show me what you can do. I don't care what black and white words you have on your resume, right? I want to see an app you've built. I want to touch it. I want to play with it. And then I want to talk to you about that and talk to you mm -hmm. about why you did certain things. I want to hear your decision-making and all that. That's just my personal view on it. But yeah, I always recommend to people building a bunch of different smaller portfolio projects. That's another misconception is some people think they need to build a full featured app on the app store. That is one path, but I think building seven, eight, nine, small, not on the app store, play with MapKit, play with ARKit, because yeah, as you yeah, know, yeah. our profession, you're constantly learning a new framework. You're constantly having to implement this. So if you can showcase that you can quickly learn a bunch of different iOS frameworks, I think that's super valuable, especially to a small startup. Again, one last disclaimer, hiring practices, obviously completely two different planets when you're talking FANG and small startups. And I think right. people try to bundle them all together, they're a thousand percent different. You also just have companies that are not in California, right? That are medium sized, small or small companies that aren't necessarily startups. I'm from the Midwest. Yeah. I'm in the Midwest. I worked at a small company. It's hard to find necessarily iOS focused stuff here, but there's always the occasional stuff. And that's, that's better than nothing as far as getting opportunity. And I think like to me, Small company, you really deep dive, you learn a lot of the pieces of what it takes to build an app. And I don't just mean an app, but like a company too that maybe is built around an app or mm -hmm. app supports it. I think, I think, go ahead. I was going to say, I think that's an interesting perspective because my whole career was in San Francisco before I went indie and did my own thing. So I only know the two extremes, the right. bang or small startup. So you sound like you have a good insight into the middle ground. So I think that might be valuable too, to let some people know. So I guess what, what is hiring developers like in that middle ground? I think it, I think part of it 
is I'm in a university town, so there's obviously a lot of mm. people who are graduates who, <laughs> yeah, there's a funnel here. So that's always been helpful. But I think like to me, like I'm more interested in experience. Speaking of which, I've been through trying to look for helpers, as you might have heard with some of my work, and I mostly look for contractors. So for me, it's I want to see like show me. Resume is like a very early starting point, and then it, like I agree completely. Portfolio and like references, because and talking to the person too, and getting the oh, explain to me how this worked, or what do you like about this, or because it's more, are you going to be a good fit? Do you know the APIs I'm working with? Because I have a very specific thing that I need help with, and like that to me is how it's worked for me as far as like contractor getting help and things like that. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question, but that's definitely well, no, how I, it I felt just... like me. For me. Yeah, I just think it's a good perspective because, again, we, a lot of times people talk about the two extremes, the small startup or the fang, but like you said, there was a whole huge swath of companies that are in that middle ground. Vast majority, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and again, there's, there is startups outside of California. There's not, they're not all there, but yeah, so I think for me, I'm, I love working for small companies and startups and working on my own, obviously. So that's, I'm in the same boat of being a little bit biased, but yeah. Let's talk networking. So I noticed you talked a bit about networking on your video, but of course a lot has changed in the last three years, at least mm-hmm. in the last four months. But what, I guess, kind of review what you said a few years ago and then maybe what has changed in that time. Yeah. So prior to COVID, again, I was preaching in-person meetups a lot. Again, I was in San Francisco, so that's there's a meetup every night somewhere. <laughs> that's also what I would have preached is maybe not necessarily San Francisco, but if you were trying to get into tech, try to find the closest tech hub to you. Like in the United States, there's Seattle, Austin, New York, there's Boston, Raleigh, Research Triangle. There's a couple different little pockets, and I would have recommended trying to go there. Like you said, COVID changed all that. So much of it has shifted online. My biggest regret in my career, and I still stand by this, and I know this will be a controversial take nowadays, was not getting involved on Twitter early. So again, now we're talking 2016, 2017, right? But I waited two years to really get on Twitter and get involved. And this is why I preach it nonstop, because you get in there, you get access to all kinds of developers at all kinds of companies, not only just to help you get a job, but so many people are putting out what they're learning, what they're building, because a big thing nowadays is the build in public. So I do it too. If I'm building a feature, I share screenshots of it along the way. So you get to see what people are working on. It's just... People are putting out so much stuff that I would definitely recommend getting on Twitter. I didn't say Mastodon. I'll address that real quick. I'm sure I'm sure Mastodon is an amazing space for just the existing iOS developers. And I'm sure it's great. I haven't joined yet because my world typically deals with a beginner, the person just getting into this world. And I believe those people are entering through Twitter. They're not starting with Mastodon. A percentage of them will find their way to Mastodon. So I feel like my people, the people I'm trying to help, if I just stayed in Mastodon because I was mad at Elon, like I would be like gatekeeping so many beginners. And that's how I feel about it. That's why I haven't gone that route. And I'm not knocking it. Like I said, I'm sure it's an amazing, peaceful place. <laughs> but <laughs> the people I'm trying to reach and help, they're not there yet. They may make their way there, but they start on Twitter. So yeah, that's why that's my recommendation for the new people. Start on Twitter. Hey, explore Mastodon. If you like it, stay there. But I just fully believe that Twitter is still going to be top of funnel for new people coming into the community. I agree 100%. I want to address that. I, I agree. But I also want to jump back and talk about local networking. 
Because it's funny you mention that. I've mentioned this before on my videos is that at the end of 29, I felt like where I am locally, my local networking had run dry. I just was like, I'm done. This is not worth my time. And I pretty much focused all online. This is the end of 2019, by the way, like totally coincidentally. Yeah. Um, and like I had done everything. I had done meetups. I used to do a Cocoa Heads at the local Apple store and I would get five, six people. And obviously it's the size of the town and where it's focused. And I did a little bit, I did a little bit in the, some of the bigger metro areas in Michigan. But for me, it was just like, this is not worth it for me. Like driving an hour, setting up a meetup, getting a, like getting a speaker and like I, I had focused so much. I just shifted everything over to Twitter at that point. And I've, it's been great. Like that's been great. Slack also has been really good as far as networking and things like that. And just circling back, like as far as, first of all, I wanted to ask, do you do anything meetup at all related post COVID, post COVID? No, cause I, I moved to North Carolina. Once I decided, I, okay. I like you said, I coincidentally moved before COVID, before San okay. Francisco became a ghost town. Uh, <laughs> just because when I decided to do my YouTube channel full time, I was like, I don't need to be living in downtown San Francisco paying this insane rent. I decided to move to another city that's a little more more reasonable. You had good timing too, as far as your, <laughs> yeah, I, your decision. It was like six months in advance, but it was pure luck. Yeah. But no, so I've tried, I put out a tweet and also like COVID, when I first got here in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I'm at, I tried putting out a tweet because I know like Bank of America is here and I know there's a lot of Bank of okay. America developers here, but it was also during COVID and it was like, as things were just opening up, so it was like hard to find a spot. And then I got four people that responded to what you were saying. I was like, oh, so I kind of petered out on trying to do an in-person meetup uh, just because like I said, I just Twitter, if you're talking about ROI on your time. Yeah. yeah. Just being on Twitter is way, way more. Sean, like, this is a realization I came up with. It's I'm, I reach so many more people with this podcast, and it, it's probably a thousand times more for you. But, like, you reach so many more people on YouTube or podcast or even Twitter than you ever do in a meetup. Like, to me, it's like, why would I present at a meetup when there's five people there when I could give a podcast where there's, like, hundreds or thousands of people listening. Yeah. It's just like ROI on that's ridiculous. It's not even worth yeah. it. So as far as like Mastodon, I think you hit it on the nose. I think Mastodon is really good for hitting like existing experienced developers, which to me is sometimes that is worth it to me. I've gone on Mastodon, listen to the end of the show, you'll hear my plug. But it makes sense for me in that regard because there's like existing developers. I want to reach more of the experienced audience and like, with you though, yeah, you've hit the, you hit it on the nose. Like all the beginners, all the new people are going to be on Twitter. It just, it is. People feel intimidated by Mastodon still. I think it's not as bad as it used to be as far mm -hmm. as getting started and picking your server. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's exactly it. It's like when you, new people are going to be on Twitter it, as far as for the next two or three years until yeah, yeah. it shuts down because AOL <laughs> buys them or Yahoo or whoever. Yeah. I agree completely. What? What other networks have you found? I'm just curious. I talked a bit about TikTok. I've killed TikTok. It just wasn't <laughs> worth it for me. Yeah. YouTube shorts are just a lot better. Yeah, um, there's also I, the potential ban coming. Like I would feel I if think, I was building a brand on TikTok right now, I'd be nervous. I'm not saying it's going to get banned, but there's that looming cloud. I don't know. I'd be nervous. And that's fair enough. I think like around, I mentioned this in my video, my end of the year video was like at the end of the year, I pretty much was like, okay, let's. Like, Twitter has its issues. Let's see what else is out there. I found LinkedIn to be half decent. 
as far mm-hmm. as the audience. I don't know about you. Uh, I, I think LinkedIn obviously is more career based and it's yeah. technical. It gets a bit technical, but it's also a bit like, it's a bit more like managers and C-level folks, which can yeah. be worth it. But what other networks have you found useful to you? Yeah, so as... useful to me. So probably a couple years ago, I actually cut everything out. <laughs> I was doing all, I was doing LinkedIn, yeah, I was right. doing I Instagram, I was doing, yeah. And it was just, it's a lot for one person to try to manage five platforms and post consistently and yeah. post like native to that platform, not just repost everything, which I guess now on LinkedIn and Instagram, all you're seeing is people screenshotting their tweets and making it a carousel. <laughs> I guess it's all <laughs> happening again, but it was too much. And I found that I was just posting like bare minimum. And I was like, if I'm not going to do these platforms, right. I'm just, again, back to ROI and your time. Like I'm just not doing it well. So that back then I decided to focus on YouTube and Twitter. And those are just my two focuses. I've seen other people succeed. Like I've seen, I know you've had Michaela on your podcast before, Darren, she does well on Instagram. Brittany of Brit Code, she does well on Instagram. Ivar's Mayers, I'm probably mispronouncing his last name. So I've seen a lot of developers do very well on Instagram and parlay those audiences into a YouTube channel or something else. So I don't have any experience with LinkedIn. I don't, I deleted my LinkedIn account because it became just recruiter spam. Spam. <laughs> I was like, all I do is get recruiter spam. I'm not even on here. Why do I even have this? Yeah. So, so I can't really speak well, to that. But how about let's go back and talk about that beginner developer. Do you think LinkedIn might be a better fit for some of those people if they're looking for a job? Yeah, I think what your last little bit right there, I think, is the differentiator. What are you looking for? If you're okay. looking for a job, sure, yeah, probably LinkedIn. Getting And by the way, it's not just – I want to address this going back to Twitter as well because we've said get on these platforms. But I want to give actionable advice. It's, okay, cool, I'm on Twitter. Now what? I want to give actionable advice on what to do when you're on there. But like I said, I can't speak to LinkedIn because I'm not on there, but Twitter – is I follow some of the big names just because those are probably going to be the ones that you know, and then look at who they're following, go through there, click on the bios, see what company they're at, follow them if you want. And then slowly but surely, you're going to build up your following list. And then don't be afraid to interact. Get in there. And especially when people are sharing their, the content creators, sharing their podcast, sharing their video, sharing the work, get in there. It's great video. Loved it. Or provide constructive criticism. It doesn't have to be sunshine yes. and rainbows all the time. Don't be mean, but feel free to provide a little criticism, but get in there, interact, like it, retweet it. And I say this not for like selfish reasons, because I want people to retweet my stuff. I'm saying it because being on the other side of that, I know the people that are constantly interacting with my stuff, liking my yes. stuff. And you were talking yes. about building a network and it's a two way street, building a network mm-hmm. with an existing developer isn't, let me just take from them. It's a give, give and take. You help them spread their mm-hmm. content. If they're, even if they're not a content creator, say they're just building in public and they're showing a screenshot of what they're building, comment on it, give your thoughts, yes. give your advice. It's a conversation, right? Interact. Yeah. And the more yes. you interact and also back to expectations we talked about in the beginning, networking on Twitter and building a network is going to take you a year or two, right? You're not going to interact on Twitter for a week and then all of a sudden have this amazing Twitter network, right? It's over the long term. You're slowly going to build that up. And then the reason I mentioned like networking with, I guess, maybe more well-known developers is because when it comes time, I've had people that always interact with my stuff. And when it comes time for them to like, hey, I'm looking for a job, anybody knows something, I'm always retweeting it because I want to repay the favor of them liking, interacting with my stuff. Like I said, the networking is a two-way street and it takes a long time. Those are the only two things I want to leave people with the expectations. And I think, I think interaction is the big part. Like I'll even say like a YouTube comment. Like, I don't know how bad it is for you, but for me, it's not that bad. Like, I don't get a lot of garbage as far as my YouTube comments, but like a YouTube comment, a LinkedIn reply, a Twitter reply. You do a great job, too, with asking questions on Twitter. Like, reply to those and maybe not just fill out the poll, but reply. 
Yeah, post que- post questions. It's okay to ask questions on Twitter. Technical questions. I do it too. And I think mm-hmm. like like you said, it's a conversation. And like you like said, when they post that Twitter, that tweet that's hey, I'm looking for you'll remember that person because yeah. they reply to you and they like your videos and like your stuff on Twitter. So yeah, yeah. I totally agree at one hundred percent. Yeah, you do that. Yeah, you do that enough times. It won't just be like one person retweeting. It'll be like, oh, this person's been super active in the community, super engaging. Yep. Yeah, you'll get multiple people retweeting and the word spreads. And yeah, it's just, I don't want to, I also don't want to paint the picture of you're doing this for, so you can get a retweet on your job post so you can get a job. You don't do this with an end goal in mind. You do this with, I'm going to build a bunch of goodwill in the community and make legitimate friends or at least acquaintances. And then one day we're going to be able to help each other out. Like right. I, I always say, especially to the people just learning, network with other people that are just learning too. Because you're going to build that relationship again over years. And then two, three, four, five years from now, who knows? That person may be working at Apple. That person may be working at some other company you want to work at. Or they may be looking to a co-founder for their company. You grow up with these people, if you will. So if you've built that relationship that whole time, like it's just, it's unforeseen benefits that are going to happen. You don't, I don't, I can't tell you what's going to happen, but good things are probably going to happen. It's, yeah, that's so, that's so many things in life. It's like you build the relationship for the relationship, and then there's benefits that might come from yeah. that. But don't go into it being like, hey, I need this job. Could you get me this job? Thank you. And then that's your tweet. And that's like, you never exactly, hear from them yeah. again. Like, that's not going to work. And yeah, you have to invest in it. It's also too, I don't know where I've heard this, but a lot of success comes from luck. And it's true. Like, part of it is you need to keep playing the game in order to improve your chances, because that's the mm-hmm. only way you'll ever get lucky. Luck has to happen. You have to try, and then you can be successful at it yeah if you're not out there luck's not just going to come to you and fall in your lap you got to right. be out there like moving and shaking stirring things up and then luck just magically happens exactly exactly before we close out i wanted to get more of your opinion on mastodon so you have you created a mastodon account you said no you didn't right no because a little context mastodon tried to happen in like 2018 2019 i can't do you remember when that happened i twitter mm-hmm. did something i can't remember yeah, yeah, yeah. everyone was like i'm going to mastodon i'm going to mastodon and then two weeks later everyone's back. No one did anything. So I was taking the wait and see approach this time. Obviously it looks like it's sticking around this time, but I was taking the wait and see because I was like, well, I've seen this movie before. Let's see how it plays out. So it looks like it's sticking. Still don't know about the long term of it. Again, it's probably going to be great as that little iOS developer walled garden because I use Twitter for so much, right? For my other hobbies, like startup and tech, YouTube, investing, sports, iOS development, iOS dev, my, I've used Twitter lists. So my iOS dev list is the only one that even mentions Mastodon. None of the other quote unquote normal people even mention Mastodon. So that's yeah. why I don't think it's going to get mass adoption and why I still think it's going to be top of funnel for the new iOS developers, the new people in the iOS dev community. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wish, like I keep talking about this because I know a lot of developers said F Elon, I'm never posting on Twitter and I think again, it's a little bit of gatekeeping, like, cause the new people, Come in, I feel like you're holding your content back, all your, the stuff you share that's so valuable. You have very, very valuable stuff. And these new developers, because again, only a small percentage of them, I believe, are going to actually make it to Mastodon to see it. So I feel like there's a huge void now of content on Twitter that's just the new people aren't getting. And I'm trying to fill that void, but I'm only one person. There's still a lot of people putting out stuff. I don't want to make it yeah. seem like I'm the last one standing, but I do know a lot of people that I used to follow that posted awesome stuff don't post anymore and it's just gone. I think it- I think it depends on their audience. If they're like you and they have, they're selling a course for a book, like I definitely have seen them say on Twitter, if there's somebody post like who builds indie apps that Mm -hmm. I tend to see like that where it's like more 
more, hey, cool, this API helped me do this, then I see that more of those people being willing to cut off ties with Twitter. Yeah. Uh, also, more te- really technically people, too, who are just like, like I've seen Apple people stop posting to Twitter. But I think the build in public people and the indie devs are, that's, honestly, that's what I meant by the most valuable because to right. me, that's, insp- that's inspiration to the new developers. Yeah. Look at what this person's building and they're sharing what they're building. I can do that. And a lot of times it's developers of well-known apps. So yeah. they can make the connection of seeing the developer of this app that they may know and seeing what they're building. I just think there's a lot of inspirational stuff that got lost. And again, if they have their beliefs. That's fine. I just, I wish the new people coming in could see that. still see it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. Totally. Way to end on it. It's such a downer note. Thanks, Sean. <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, we can dabble in the in this the quick stay up to date on Swift, or again, I don't no. know about the Swift UI stuff with on the Mac app with built in Creator View, or we can end well, it on downer. Yeah, let's talk about your app. You're building an app. Okay. Let's talk about this app that you're building. Yeah, What's um, it called? so it's called Creator View. It's meant for basically built it for myself, which is hopefully how all the best products start. <laughs> basically, my running my YouTube channel, my business, I had a giant spreadsheet and had about 15 different notes in my notes app. And I decided to combine all that into a native app on the iPhone, on the iPad and on the Mac, because thinking about my business, I'm doesn't matter where I'm at. I always get ideas and I want to be able to manage my business from wherever. But the interesting thing for the developers listening, because I highly doubt there's a lot of YouTubers listening, is it is a fully Swift UI app and it's on all platforms, iPhone, iPad, and Mac. And that's been an interesting journey just doing that because I had never built a Mac app before. And I don't know AppKit. So basically it's Swift UI from the start. And there's a lot of trade-offs that, that go with that. Main, mainly... It's getting better now, but when I first built the app, the Mac app was basically iPad screens on a Mac. And you could tell. It was big, chunky buttons. Big, and this chunky- is this is not Catalyst. This is like totally no, straight up Swift UI. It, it so it's kind of like, like an iPad app. Okay. Yeah, it still looked like an iPad app because just if you've ever built a Mac app, even just Mac button, it's totally different. Like right, all your right. Swift UI buttons will look horrible if you just transfer them over to the Mac without doing yeah. something different. And there's even a lot of little stuff that you still got to use, like instead of UI color, NS color, I know that's AppKit and UIKit, but some of the semantic colors, secondary system background and stuff like that, those are still technically like UIKit. But anyway, it's been interesting in architecture as well, because it's been a good practice in separation of concerns, meaning if I have UI on an iPhone, which is drastically different than UI on an iPad, which is drastically different than the UI on a Mac, they're all like the dashboard screen has one like model, right? For dashboard mm-hmm. and all the screens doing that. So the exercise in being like, okay, what can I share? What can I not share? And that's a constantly evolving process. That's been like super interesting and fun. And I remember when I first built the Mac app, I was surprised how I'm going to put it in quotes easy. It was, I was expecting a nightmare and it, it ended up not being too bad. So I guess what I might leave you with is if you do have an iPad and an iPhone app, because I know most developers don't develop for Mac. I don't know. If you think your audience can use it, I would give the Mac a try. It's not that bad. Well, yeah, we did a really good episode with Troz, so definitely check that out in her mm-hmm. book. Did you have to do any app kit, like NS view representable or view controller? No. The only thing that I had to do a representable for is the, the mail sheet. So in, in my info, in the feedback, send me feedback, right? Because there's no native Swift UI thing to pop up the native mail sheet. Yeah. Uh, that is the only... And I don't want to... I'm not against using UI kit, by the way. I don't want to make it sound like... Or app kit, you mean. Like, or app kit, or yeah, either one. However, I am, I'm not against it, but I'm using it as a last resort. So I, and I know this is blasphemy to a lot of people, 
I am basically taking what Swift UI gives me because also a design principle for the app is I want it to feel like a native Apple app, which helps because I can use a lot of the built-in default stuff, which also helps me build on all the platforms. A lot of people's problem with Swift UI when they say Swift UI sucks, it's not ready yet, is they try to, uh, this is the phrase I use, they try to bend Swift UI to their will instead of bending to Swift UI's will, which yeah. I know sounds blasphemous where you're like, oh, I, I need to change my feature because Swift UI can't handle it. It's fine. But if you just play nicely with Swift UI and maybe change your feature or your UI like a little bit so it works well with Swift UI, you might not get that perfect animation or exact transition you want, but you'll still get something that looks great and works. I just I think the developer gains on working with Swift UI, if you work with it and not fight it, yeah. I think far exceed the downsides of having to adjust your feature, not getting maybe like exactly what you want. So I'll just say my one big complaint with that is I feel like Swift UI does not make it easy to design a good Mac OS app. I feel like the native to me Swift UI like I'm in the same boat I'm building a Swift UI Mac app and what I've found is like the things I want it to look like an actual Mac app I feel like they don't look like an actual Mac app if I don't fight Swift UI a little bit. And that's more of a complaint of the design. I guess not maybe not the design, but so much like the the way Apple has not like really made the Swift UI controls on the Mac look like the actual Swift UI controls. I'm like, oh, this is how a really good Mac app does it. And then you do it in Swift UI and it looks like a iOS app that had been ported over. That, yeah, I that's I'm my biggest that. complaint. I agree though hundred percent. If you're building, don't fight Swift UI, but the, but I feel like if I did it in AppKit, and I don't think it's worth it, but if I did it in AppKit, I think it would look nicer, unfortunately. It's funny. I remember when they first announced SwiftUI, I was actually like live streaming the announcement and I tweeted out, I was like, SwiftUI, I'm skeptical. Cause like at the time, if you remember when SwiftUI first came out, everyone was just like glowing about it, right, gushing right. how awesome it was. And I was like one of the only people to be like, I don't know. I love SwiftUI, by the way. I'm not, I'm still not there. The main reason I was skeptical, cause I was like, well, yeah, if you just do a basic list or all, again, all the default built in forms, mm -hmm. built in stuff, I was like, yeah, it works great. And I was like, all the apps are going to look the same. That's what, that was my thinking. Like the day it was announced, I was like, yeah, everyone's going to use the default that. That was the big complaint about Catalyst too, was like, oh, if you're just going to build an iOS app and port it to the Mac, it's not going to look as great as a yeah. fully native Mac app. Yeah, exactly. So I've come around to, again, back to UIKit and SwiftUI just being a tool, like use, use it properly. Now my beliefs are, because of the app I am building, CreatorView, I do want it to look like an Apple app. So I love using all the default built-in stuff. I want it to feel very native. But if you want to build one of those like whimsical, fun, unique UIs, maybe you are better off sticking with UIKit because then you do have all the flexibility. But if you are cool with right. it looking like an Apple app, then SwiftUI is probably the better way. And I think there's a lot there. The, to me, the gains of SwiftUI and the architecture patterns and the whole way you manage two-way binding, I think way outweigh the losses you get on creating cool animations. And especially in the long term, because what ends up happening is in two or three years, like Apple will add the stuff. Like we know SwiftUI is the future. So why yeah. would I want to build an app just using UI kit only or only app kit and then be screwed in two or three years because there's a ton of cool stuff I can do in Swift UI. I think I, some people are saying it, but I think this gets lost a lot is that iOS development or just developing for Apple platforms is only getting harder and harder. Back in the day, there was what, two screen sizes. Now there's right. eight different screen sizes for iPhone and iPad. And now we're going to get a headset coming soon. So like you said, the gains on being able to 
you know, the Swift, the gain Swift UI gives you, even if you use the Apple stuff, far outweigh trying to write everything custom for all the platforms. You're just biting off so much work when you try yep. to do it that way. And it's, is yep. all that worth it? Or can you just not fight Swift UI, go with Apple stuff and be more productive, your team on all the platforms? Because there's so many things that like take into account now with iOS yep. development. Exactly, exactly. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a fantastic conversation. Glad to finally get you on. Where can people find you online? Yeah, so youtube.com slash Sean Allen or on Twitter, Sean Al- at Sean Allen underscore dev. Awesome. Thank you again for coming on. This was really no fun. Uh, Appreciate you me, Leo. Fi- yeah, we'll do it again, hopefully. People can find me on Twitter at leogdonmastodon at leogdonatc.im. If you're watching this on YouTube, please hit subscribe. I'd really appreciate it. And if you're listening to this on a podcast player, give me a review. And if there's anything you want to listen to or you have on the show to talk about a specific topic, reach out to me. Like we said, please reply. You can DM me. My DMs are open. It's a great way to network. Thank you. That's it. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Talk to you later, everybody. Bye. Bye, everybody.